this last summer, Juan and I were out in Lake Okoboji, Iowa. Anybody ever been to Lake Okoboji, Iowa? It's the Iowa Ocean. It's where Iowans go on vacation because they have no ocean. So they go to Lake Okoboji. And there's a big Bible conference there. About three years ago, I spoke at it, and uh, I was there alone. And, uh, and then this last year, Juan and I went, and, uh, and I, I took Juan to a cup of coffee into her seminar one day, and this woman and Wanda were having a conversation. I handed the coffee to Wanda, and Wanda leaned in, and she kissed me. And this woman looked at Wanda and said, uh, Wanda, you're married to Ron. Why are you kissing him? <laughs> and she goes, that is Ron. And she goes, that's not Ron. I know your husband. That man is not your husband. I go, no, no, no. I really am wrong. It took us, what, five minutes to convince this lady that I was actually wrong. I was having an identity crisis. So, anyhow. But yes, I'm wrong. And uh, it's good to be back with you. All right, I want to use an economy of words to talk about an uh, incredibly detailed topic, emotional healing. And I, I want to do that because I know you have an economy of ability to listen left, okay? And so I'm going to use a lot of story. I'm going, to, I'm going to be very personal about this. And this, in some ways, is going to chart my own process of emotional healing. Uh, I think it will be helpful because it's a little different perspective than what Rob shared, a little different perspective than what Wanda shared. Same message, same truth, but just from a different angle, okay? So when we talk about emotional healing as a doorway to God's power, let me just say this. I don't think that that means we have to be emotionally healed before God can use us. Uh, I, in fact, I think that when we begin to embrace the truth that I have some brokenness in me, that's when God says, oh, I can use that person. So you may not be, in fact, the truth is you, you and I will not be fully emotionally healed until we get to heaven. But when people begin to embrace this process, I think that surrender to the, the recognition that I'm broken, I'm hurting, I've got, I've got shame issues. We go to stuff like this and we, we go, am I ever going to be free? Yes, when you get to heaven. Now here's the good news. I'm more free now than I was 15 years ago. I'm more free now than I was two years ago. And as I continually recognize uh, the evidence of shame, the evidence of hurt, the evidence of things that are not yet uh, completely healed, that recognition leads to God saying, I am willing to use people that are broken, but they're taking the veil off, they're being honest, they're being real. And so if you look at biblical case studies and church history, when people embrace their brokenness, when people are honest to God, they get a touch from God, uh, those moments are almost always followed by an outpouring of the spirit and power. Maybe just a couple examples. Uh, one in recent history, uh, some of you are familiar with the Toronto blessing and the, the outpouring of the spirit that happened in Toronto. I know there were issues here and there, but what preceded that revival, or the beginning of that revival, was a lot of emotional brokenness, a lot of inner healing. Uh, another example from church history was uh, John Wesley. Some of you may know John Wesley was a failed missionary to the state of Georgia. Uh, he had a horrible experience. He was basically run out of town in the middle of the night, was ready to give up a ministry, and uh, in that brokenness, uh, he met the Moravian missionaries on his way back to England, and uh, the Wesleyan revival was birthed out of his own brokenness. Okay? And so I, I honestly believe that as we begin to say, Lord, uh, yes, I've got emotional stuff. Yes, there's shame issues. Yes, there's lies that I believe. 
even in the process of admitting that, before we're completely free, God starts to empower us. Mm. And God starts to use us in some really amazing ways. So my definition, I, I, I wrote this definition for emotional healing. Because I get a little pushback from people. The first half of the Bible is, you know, well, listen, emotional healing or inner healing is not some kind of a psychological term. I think it's the gospel. And so this is my definition. Emotional or inner healing is the application of the gospel of Jesus Christ and his healing power to the root memories and our woundings of our past. It allows us to experience God's grace and mercy at the core of our being rather than dealing only with surface and or symptomatic issues. So it's really, what does the gospel do? The gospel comes and confronts the lives of Satan in your life. And some of those lives are right now in the present. I'm worthless, I'm no good. But the truth is, all of those lives are rooted in memories from your past. Now, keep this in mind as we plunge into this topic. None of us live from logical truth. We all live from experiential knowledge. And so when something happens, and let's say you're at work, you're in a job, and something happens that reminds you of an incident that happened 10 years ago. You don't think through rationally and logically how this is a very different place of work, how your boss is different. No, you, you immediately, if it smells like that old memory, the emotions that you experience are instantly back 10 years ago. And that happens in relationships, it happens in families. Why? Because we live from our experiential knowledge. Now, this is why as Christians, we must let people experience the love of God, the healing of God, because Satan lets them experience his pain, his attack, his wounding, and lies get implanted in those experiential moments. Guess what? The truth of God gets implanted when we experience his love, his truth, his power. Last week, one and I were teaching a class at the seminary. There was a young Brazilian guy. Um, this guy, he's so handsome. Yeah, I wish I could be him. If, if I was as good looking as him, I, I'd be his face. I mean, he's just good. He's got long hair. Um, I know my wife loves me, but this guy was really good looking. And um, is it okay for a guy to admit that? Of course, this is Oregon. So, this, this dude, I mean, he's just, and he's a musician, and he's an artist, he's a worship leader, but. God met him in one of our ministry times, and the power of the Holy Spirit just poured over him, and the love of God was poured into him. And he told me that in that moment of experiencing the love of God, it erased lies that he believed about himself for years. And that night, he said he got to preach as a man that had been set free. He was leading a youth group down in the city. Well, that experiential encounter with the love of God will be with him for the rest of his life. Just as your experiential wounding and the lives that accompany that wounding will be with you for the rest of your life unless they get confronted by God's truth. So it's, it's really the gospel. Uh, so why do you need emotional healing? Well, uh, here's three people that need it. If you're sitting here going, uh, I don't know if I need it. Well, here's the three categories. Number one, if you live in a sinful world, you need emotional healing. So the reality is we all get hit by stuff. Now, and I think this is a category that's even tougher because uh, when you live in a sinful world, bad stuff happens. So we got to Steve's last night from the airport. We got in about you know midnight, uh, twelve thirty, which felt like um, three thirty to us. 
And about 4 a.m. your time, I started getting phone calls from my neighbors back in my cabin in New York because a tornado, tornado had swept through and had wiped out houses, had wiped out. Now, praise the Lord, my cabin was not touched. Why my neighbors felt the need to call me and tell me and wake me up at 4 in the morning and say your cabin was untouched? No, I'm thankful that they did that. But, but the point is, who do you blame on a natural disaster? You know, so there's things that happen in a sinful world where there's no one to blame, and yet they have an impact on our lives. Okay. Second category: if you have wounds inflicted or sin committed by others, there's some emotional trauma accompanied with that. Okay. And then the third category are if, if you've ever committed your own sin. Guess what? We're sometimes, in fact, often, you give me the argument, our own worst wounder. Now. I want to share a couple stories to set this up, and we're going to look at a couple of biblical case studies and, and how do we practically walk out emotional healing for ourselves and help others walk through it. And this is pretty personal. Um, I, I want to share two stories of wound, two wounds that happened to me as a child that were critical developmental wounds that affected me for many years. The first happened when I was seven years of age. Uh, I was seven years of age, I was in a bathtub, um, and I was playing with a tugboat. I can literally still see the bathroom, I can see my red and white tugboat. I'm having the time of my life playing with this tugboat. I think I even had suds in the tub. I'm just having a blast. But I'm in there all by myself, um, and um, some you all know is that when a child begins to develop, a young male child, there's times that he will experience an erection, not because he's doing anything wrong, just because that's kind of the way your body operates. You just, all of a sudden, that happens. Um, and my mom walked in at one of those moments where I'm playing in the tub. Now, just so you know, I was so innocent. I was so naive. I did not even know to hide it. I didn't cover. I'm just playing top boat and periscope at the same time. Okay? And I'm uh, just kind of having the time of my life, you know? And my mom looks at me and she says these words. What are, what are you doing to yourself? You're a pervert just like your father. And she walks out and shuts the door. Now, I didn't even know what the word pervert meant. I'm thinking, okay, just like my dad, he's a good guy. But I don't know what pervert means. Well, it wasn't long, um, what, seven years old is about second grade, second, third grade. Guess what? Kids get this knowledge quickly. I found out what the word pervert meant. Uh, pervert, it's someone that's twisted, it's, it's someone that's not normal, it's someone, they're a deviant, you know. I mean, that's what I found out the word meant. Well, then it was complicated by what? There's something wrong with me that's not wrong with anybody else. So the lie, here, here's the thing to keep in mind. When you get wounded, it's not just the wound, it's the lie you believe about yourself because of that wound. So the lie I believe was this, there's something wrong with me that's not wrong with other little boys. So when I went through normal sexual development stuff, stuff that was just normal, stuff that meant my body was functioning the way God intended it to function, in, in my head, the lie from that moment was there. There's something wrong with me. There's something twisted. There's something sick. There's something deviant. There's something perfect. And then what compounds that further was, just like my dad, well, maybe it runs in the family, you know? 
And, and that brought Paul into question the man who was calling me into my manhood. And so there's a lot of offshoots from that one wound and that lie that affected me. Second moment. I'm now 12. And uh, I'm right on the cusp of becoming a teenager. I'm starting to notice girls. And I'm worried, oh, are girls going to notice me? Are they going to think I'm handsome? So I go to the most important woman in my life at that time, my mom. And I ask her this question. I said, Mom, am I handsome? And here was her response. No, son, you're not handsome. But you're smart. And that'll get you by. Now, please, if your 12-year-old son asks you if he's handsome, you say yes. No matter what he looks like. Because here's the truth. He's handsome to somebody somewhere, you know. And you should find him handsome because he's your boy, okay? So tell him he's handsome. Because what that did in me, combined with some of the other issues that I was now struggling with, it, it, it planted this lie. You're not good looking. You're not handsome. And, and, and when I went to church camps, and when I went to youth rallies, and I was a preacher's kid, when I went to the uh, church events, or when I went to other stuff, or band camp even, my goal was to find a girl that would sneak off with me and maybe kiss me once or twice and let me know you're handsome. But you know what the sad thing is? Even if I could get a girl to say, hey, you're good looking, hey, give me a kiss, I didn't do anything really bad, but I would then dump them and try to find another girl. You know what? because I was trying to fill a hole that was made by the most significant woman in my life, my mom. And that doubt was never filled with one, two, three, four, five. Years later, when my kids were teenagers, one night at the supper table, one of my kids said, hey, let's play a game. Let's talk about how many people we've kissed. And my oldest daughter went, I kissed two guys. And my son went, I kissed three girls. And one went, I kissed two guys. And I went, two? Okay. <laughs> and they got to me and I went, I'm not playing this game. And the shame was overwhelmed. Why? Because um, there were developmental wounds that happened in my childhood. Now, if you remember, Jesus said that it's, if someone sins against a child, it would be better than a millstone would be hung around his neck. I think the reason for that is that when you wound a child, that's a developmental wounding, and it changes the rudder on the ship of a person's life. And even if it only changes it this much at 7 or 12, guess what? How far off course are they? Because that rudder changes just a little bit. So I think that's why developmental woundings are so significant, and why we have to take them seriously in terms of their healing. Now what I want to do is I want to look at two biblical peace studies. I want to look first of all at Peter. We're going to look at Peter a little bit. Because in Peter, you see a dysfunctional disciple that God used mightily. Now, back to what I said before. God will use people that are not perfectly healed. And I can prove that by Peter, and I can prove that by Ron, and I can prove that by you. Because we are not perfectly healed, but as we enter into the process, God uses broken people who are willing to take the veil off and be honest. And, and Peter's an example of that. And then we're going to look quickly at an Old Testament character. But I want to start with Peter. And I want to start with this, this passage in Matthew 16. Now, if you remember, just before this moment, where Jesus has been talking about going to the cross and dying, and Peter rebukes him, prior to this, Jesus had asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? And they respond, well, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah. And Peter came out with it, you're the Christ. 
You're the Son of the living God. And if you remember Jesus' response, he said, Blessed are thou, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter, you're hearing from God. Okay? The words you're speaking, they come from heaven. It's a prophetic word. It's divinely inspired. Well, then just a few moments later, same chapter, Jesus is talking about being taken to Jerusalem, crucified. And Peter pulls him aside and begins to rebuke him. Now remember, he's just said, you're the Christ, you're the Son of the living God, and now he begins to rebuke him. I've often wondered if he said, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus, Jesus, since Jesus is Christ. <laughs> he rebukes him. He says, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Now, now think about that for people that argue Christians can't be demonized. Jesus says that out of the same mouth can come prophetic inspiration, but now he's being influenced not by heaven, but by hell. And, and I would argue that the foothold in, Pe in Peter's life was people-pleasing. And, and there's a deep wounding in Peter somewhere where he is always worried about what people think. Uh, and, and you see it popping up again and again. Even later in his life, after he gets healed, restored, preaches Pentecost, if you remember, uh, Paul had to rebuke him because when the Judaizers came to Galatia, he pulled away from eating with the Gentiles. Why? He, he wanted to keep everybody happy. And so even all the way through, there's, he's walking with a limp in this area. Well, after this happens, we see in Luke 22 the moment of, of, of real uh, crisis where they seize Jesus, they lead him away, they took him into the house of the high priest, and Peter followed at a distance. Now, Peter's doing better than some of the other disciples because the rest of them scatter. So Peter at least, you know, tries to hang out and, and tag along. But when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard, and, and if you have your own Bibles open, I, I'd want you to underline that kindled a fire. It's going to be real significant here in a moment because it's going to be part of the memory triggering Jesus does to bring restoration and healing. Okay? So they kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard, so they sat down together, and Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight, and she looked closely at him and said, This man was with him, but he denied it. Well, I don't know, he said. The Lord looked straight at Peter, and then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times, and he went outside and wept bitterly. Now, Here's the good news. This moment becomes a window to Peter's soul. And I don't believe this is the root and origin of Peter's dysfunction. Now, here's the good news. Sometimes the Lord will take us back to the memory that happened at 7. Sometimes the Lord will take us back to the memory that happened at 12. But sometimes God uses a current moment to bring inner healing to us. And it's not always necessary to remember the original event. Sometimes it's helpful, but sometimes God, like he does with Peter here, can use this as a window to your soul's dysfunction to uproot lies that you believe and plant the truth. Now, how does he do that? Well, this is the moment of the denial. And John 21 is the moment of restoration. Now, I love this chapter. This chapter is an inner healing chapter. I mean, if... if if, you know, if I were the writers of the NIV and I had to put a title over this chapter, I would put, 
you know, emotional healing, inner healing, emotional restoration, inner healing, restoration moment. Because it's not just for Peter, it's for the disciples. Okay, this is post-resurrection, after Jesus had resurrected, before he's ascended, and it says this, afterward Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way, Simon Peter, Thomas Bogdinus, Nathaniel from Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. Now pause there for a minute. I want to bring you some perspective here. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus met these disciples when they were fishers of fish. That's what they did for a living, fishermen. And he called them from that moment on in Luke chapter 5 to no longer be fishers of fish, but to be fishers of men. Remember that was their call, Luke 5. And there's a lot of similarities between what's going to happen next and, and, and what happened in Luke 5, because Jesus is reminding, he's triggering their memory. But I would suggest something here. That when Peter says, I'm going out to fish, there's got to be at least a little bit of rebellion. It's almost akin to you saying, that's it, I'm leaving church, I'm going to go drinking again. I'm going to go smoke weed again. I'm going to go do this. I'm going to go, whatever your old life was, in your wounding, in your depression, in your despair, it's, it's that backsliding moment. Now, is there anything wrong with fishing? No. I mean, I'm going on Friday and hopefully catching as well as fishing. But for them, this was them saying, Jesus was wrong, we're done, and we're going back to our old life. And so in that emotional despair, Peter says, I'm going fishing. Now, catch this, though. When there's leadership anointing on you, you will lead out of your dysfunction. And so that leadership anointing is so great on Peter that when he says, I'm going fishing, all the others say, we're coming too. And when I, when I do this teaching in seminary, I tell these young pastors in preparation that if you don't deal with your soul issues, you will lead entire churches into your dysfunction. And we've seen that happen in the body of Christ in America. It's time to deal with this stuff and get free. So Peter goes out. They, they go into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. Stop here for a minute. I find that my best emotional healing, inner healing moments happen when Jesus catches me by surprise. Okay? And I think maybe it's because we're expecting God to show up at church. And so often we may have our coping mechanisms, our defense mechanisms up. But I tell you what, when Jesus surprises me in the movies, that's when I get hit. Anybody else? Does God show up in the movies for you? Okay. Uh, when, when Juan and I were on a date, this is a few years back, uh, we went to the afternoon showing of uh, Mr. Holland's Opus. Did you ever see that movie? Read that movie. That's an amazing movie. I was a music guy in high school, and it's about this music teacher who wanted to write this amazing opus, and he never got his chance, and finally, you know, but we're in this movie, we're on a date, and there's only like 12 people in the whole theater. And for whatever reason, Jesus shows up and starts triggering my wounds from high school. And so as this movie's playing, I am crying. I'm crying so loud, Wanda leans over and she goes, you're embarrassing me. <laughs> Everyone can hear you crying. Just let me process it. And so it's hitting me. 
Jesus shows up at the afternoon matinee and starts to go after stuff from my high school rooming. The movie ends and I stand up and I just give it a, a standing ovation. You know? One is pulling my pants. I was totally into it. Because Jesus will show up at times and bypass your coping mechanisms and get to your heart. And that's what he does with the disciples. Now, notice what he says here. He calls out to them, friends. Translation in the Greek, terrible translation. The, the Greek word is paideon. It means little children. So again, I want you to notice something. Uh, what he is doing is he is not speaking to them in their present moment. He's speaking to them to the deepest part of who they are. And you don't address adult as little child. And yet he is speaking to them. He is speaking deeper than just the present moment. He says, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He then said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Again, if you'll remember, that's exactly what he does in Luke chapter 5. When they got the calling. So he's triggering memory. He's in essence saying, remember who you are and remember who you aren't any longer. And so he's reminding them, he's triggering them, throw your net on the right side of the boat, then you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, and you know who that was, right? John. John. A little seminary quiz here. Uh, what gospel writer wrote last? What was the last gospel to be written? Anybody know? John. Do you know why John was the last gospel writer to write? so that the others would be dead and he could refer to himself as their disciple of Jesus. <laughs> Seriously. It's a big stupid lie. They're like, love us too, John. They're all dead. That's what you get when you go to seminary. All right. So the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. Now the recognition comes. This is Jesus. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say this, his Lord, he wrapped his garment around him, for he had taken it off, jumped into the water. I think he thought he was going to walk, but it looks like he swam, and the rest show up with a net full of fish. Now, here's what happens next. Now, again, if it wasn't for all the, the memory triggers in this chapter, you might say I'm making too much of this. But what happens next is when they land, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it. Now, I want you to know, it's John says burning coals. The Greek word there is anthracite. And there's lots of fires in Scripture coals. There's fires all over the Old Testament, the New Testament, but there's only two places in all of Scripture where it specifically says the fire is a coal fire. One place is at the denial that I showed you. The other place is right here. Now, I'm from western Pennsylvania. That's coal country. My grandfather was a coal miner. My grandfather and grandmother heated their home with a coal furnace. When I smell a coal fire, I can spot it instantly. There is a distinctly different smell to coal than there is to wood. Now, why is that important? Well, first of all, your olfactory senses are your number one memory sense. When you smell the ocean, it reminds you of childhood vacation. When you smell the smells of Christmas, all of a sudden you're at grandma's house. Your olfactory smells always kick into your memory. And think about this also. If you're going to build a fire by a lake, you're going to find driftwood everywhere. The logical uh, fuel to use for a fire would be wood. You would have to pack in coal, but for whatever reason, Jesus brings in coal. Why? I think. 
to trigger the olfactory senses and that when Peter gets there, he is smelling the smell that he smelled the night he denied Jesus. Hmm. Now, again, am I making too much of it? The memory is all through this chapter and then you know what happens next. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. And he does it three times. Finally, the third time, it says, and I won't read it to you, you know the story, that Peter is stirred up. He's angry. He's aggravated that Jesus is now triggering this memory. You're reminding, you're reminding me you're shoving my face in my denial all over again. And, and if Jesus could speak, he would say, yes, I am. Because the only way I'm going to uproot the lies you believed about yourself and implant the truth of who you are is if we stir the emotions up so that the lie can be uprooted and the truth can be planted. And that's what's taking place here. And that's what Jesus wants to do with us. Let me give you an example. Um, there was a young lady in my preaching class about 15 years ago. She was uh, one of 12 and she was the only woman. And she was the best preacher in that class, much to the chagrin of the young men who didn't believe in female preachers. By the end of the semester, they did, because they saw the gifting on her. And those 11 men, young men in that class, voted for her to be the chapel preacher that year. Changed their theology. Nothing changes your theology like an anointed woman, okay? Living testimony of that. And, uh, and, uh, and Jennifer, I have Jennifer's permission to tell you this story. It was the end of her senior year. And she came to my office and she said, Ron, I got some news. I said, really, what is it? She said, I have just been offered a job and she named the church. It was a large church in the New York area. And they offered her the children's pastor role. And, uh, and it was a, a very prestigious church. She told me what the starting salary was, and it was actually more than I was making as a professor at night, hmm. which meant that I needed emotional healing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Rob does. We both do that. And I said, Jennifer, this is incredible. This is such a great opportunity. She goes, yeah, I'm not going to do it. I said, what do you mean you're not going to do it? She said, Ron, every time I have a major moment of life decision like this, I'm paralyzed by fear. And this is one of those moments, and I cannot say yes to it. I'm going to turn it down. Mm. And I said, Jennifer, you're ready for this moment. This is obviously not a logical fear. You've got to say yes to this. This is the Lord has brought this together. It's incredible. She said, I know, I know, I know. But fear will not let me say yes. And I just, off the top of my head, I said, well, when did this start? Well, little did I know that was exactly the right question. And she was waiting for me to ask it. And she said, I can tell you exactly when it started. It started when I was five years old. Her father was a pastor. And they moved to a new church. They moved into a parsonage where, in this parsonage, the previous pastor's son had attempted suicide in the closet of his bedroom tried to hang himself. And he'd been involved in some demonic stuff, some heavy metal music that was connected to the occult, and it was some real darkness. But when this new pastor, and his little girl Jennifer at the age of five moved in, this bedroom where this young man had been housed became this little girl's bedroom. 
I don't know if the church prayed through it. I don't know if there was any acknowledgement that this might not be a good idea. But what Jennifer told me, as she's sitting there now as a 22-year-old young lady getting ready to graduate from college, was that every night, demons would come out of the closet and taunt her and scream at her. And at the time, she didn't know they were demonic spirits. She thought they were just monsters. And so she'd be, oh, Mom, Dad, help, there's monsters in my closet. And you know what parents do. There's no such thing as monsters. I actually tell people now, don't educate your children into unbelief. Teach them that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the closet. And they can take authority just in case that they're experiencing a very real supernatural manifestation. But anyhow, her parents would pray with her. They'd calm her down. But this attack continued, continued. And she said, and as she's telling me this, she is reliving the memory. And the tears are coming down her face. And I realize this is a God moment. This is a moment when Jesus wants to uproot the lies and, and plant the truth. And I said, Jennifer, what did you believe as a result of that? And she's crying and she says, I believe that I was always alone, that no one could help me, that God was not with me. And she began to recite lies that had been rooted within her since she was five years old. And as she's reliving this, she's experiencing there in my office, I said, Jennifer, Jesus was there. Look for him. No, she closed her eyes. She says, he's not there. I said, you look around. Now folks, what I'm describing here is not prescriptive to do in every case because I think there's a, a lot of different ways inner healing happens. And I think we make a mistake when we try to use one single method every time. See, I'm going to talk about this tomorrow night a little bit. Um, did you ever notice that Jesus almost never healed somebody the same way twice? He spits in their eye. He sticks fingers in their ears. He yells the healing word. I mean, why? Because he doesn't want us to get stuck in a method, okay? He wants it to come out of intimacy and sensitivity to every situation. But I knew that Jesus wanted to show up and speak truth to Jennifer. And I said, look for him. So with her eyes closed and tears streaming down her face, all of a sudden she said, I see him. He's sitting on the edge of my bed. I said, look at him. She got quiet for a few minutes. And I knew she was having a moment with Jesus. And after about 10 minutes, a smile broke across her face. And the tears stopped. And she opened her eyes. And I said, what happened? She said, well, it's really cool. I looked at Jesus and he said, I'm with you. I've always been with you. And you were never alone. And then she told me she'd never understand why those demons would come this close to her face. They would scream at her. They would taunt her. She could literally smell just the stench of their breath. It was horrible. It was traumatic. But they would never touch her. And she could never understand why they never touched her until in that moment... As they began to come toward her, she saw the nail-pierced hand of Jesus go like this and stop them. And he said to them, thus far and no farther, you may not touch her. She belongs to me. Now, when Jennifer at age 22 and Jennifer at age 5 hears the words of Jesus in that moment, guess what? The lives were broken by the power of the presence of Christ and the truth of his protection in her life. And she looked at me and she says, I'm taking that job. I said, yes, you are. And you're going to make more than me. <laughs> now, Jennifer is still in ministry. She's still on a preaching team. Uh, she's living in freedom. I saw her a couple years ago, and I said, Jennifer, do you ever have fear? She goes, oh, yeah. I have fear when I need to have fear. Sometimes it's a healthy thing to feel a little bit of fear. But I have never been paranoid. 
paralyzed by fear because the lies of that fear memory that gripped me have been broken and they no longer control me. And so in a similar way, Jesus will take us into moments where he uproots the lies that have ruled us because of that age seven experience, that age 12 experience, and then he will begin to plant the truth of who he is in that moment. Now, let me show you one other story and then we'll get practical with this. Jacob the heel crab. All right, remember Jacob? The twin, Esau's brother. And Esau was the firstborn. And you remember, he stole the birthright. And then on top of stealing the birthright, purchasing the birthright, you know, he has his mom help him sneak into his dad's bedroom, Isaac. And he covers himself with the fur so that he feels like his brother Esau. And you remember, they sneak into the room, this dysfunctional family that they are, the mother helping the younger son steal the blessing. And ask for the father's blessing. And the father says, Isaac says, what is your name? And what he says is Esau. And he gets the blessing. Now, I believe that Jacob lived his whole life with a blessing he knew he didn't deserve. Now, did he get the benefits of that blessing? Yep. Uh, did he suffer some consequences? Yeah. But by and large, he experienced great blessing in his life. But in the, and, I, and I'll just make up an age, in the heart of a 12-year-old, in the heart of a 15-year-old, he knew that he was living with something that didn't rightfully belong to him. And so I believe there was shame. I believe there was self-doubt. I believe there were all kinds of things that impacted his life. And now he's probably, commentators say, close to 80 in this passage I'm going to show you. And he's on his way back to meet with the brother who wanted to kill him, Esau. And on his way back to meet with Esau, he gets in a wrestling match with the angel of the Lord. Now, again, I want you to remind, remind you about Old Testament concepts here. Often where you see an angel of the Lord, it's a theophany. It's an angelic appearance, a bodily appearance of the living God. And I believe that's what's happening here because later Jacob says, I've seen God face to face and I haven't died. You know, So there's that kind of acknowledgement. So he ends up in this wrestling match. But I want you to see the moment of, of inner healing here. Because again, he has believed his whole life. He has known his whole life. He lived with a blessing that wasn't rightfully his. Now he ends up with a wrestling match with the angel of the Lord. And he says, and, and I want you to hear this. I want you to hear these words like a 12-year-old. I've lived my whole life with a blessing I know I didn't deserve. i lived my whole life with a blessing that I know belonged to someone else. But now, now that I have you in my grasp, I will not let you go until you bless me. Let me tell you something. That's a longing that's not coming from an 80-year-old. That's, that's a longing that's coming from 80 years of knowing that he had been living with a counterfeit, that he'd been living with something. And then the man asked him, what is your name? And here's a key moment. Because now, for the first time in his life, he tells the truth. He doesn't say, I'm someone, I'm, I'm pretending to be someone, but I'm not. No, he says, I'm Jacob. And when he says Jacob, he's in essence saying this, I'm the deceiver, I'm the trickster, I'm the heel grabber, I'm the one that stole the blessing, I'm Jacob. That's who I am. If I can't get the blessing for who I am, then I can't get it. But here's who I am. And when he finally tells the truth, the man says, okay, we're going to make a change here. 
Now, there's an ontological change at the core of your being, for your name will no longer be Jacob and Israel because you've struggled with God and with men. And dare I say, you've struggled with your own stuff. And you've overcome. And the result is that Jacob uh, experiences this blessing called to place. Penal says, because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. Here, here's the other good news in this. The next chapter, he meets Esau. Esau runs out, and instead of killing him, he embraces him. Because when you begin to experience emotional healing, uh, I believe your family begins to experience it as well. They have to choose themselves to enter in. But I believe the first step to your family receiving emotional healing is for one person in the family saying, i got to get free. I'm going to tell the truth. I'm going to be who I am. I'm not going to pretend. I need to get free. And, and then it begins to spread. Now, let me get practical. I want to share my own story. I told you a few of the wounds. Let me tell you how the Lord brought emotional healing to me. So in 1993, all this um, parental wounding, growing up as a preacher's kid, it all started to surface. And our kids were just little at the time. And uh, my anger started to come out. That was the first thing I noticed. So my daughter, Karis, was about three and a half one day at um, the supper table. She spills her milk, and I lose it. My anger was out of proportion with a spilled glass of milk. And I went, Karis, what is wrong with you? The parental shame question. And we had taught our kids how to be healthy when we were not filled with anger ourselves. And, uh, and, and I'll never forget, Karis looks up at me and she goes, what's wrong with me? I'm three and a half and I spilled my milk. <laughs> the big question to that is what's wrong with you? <laughs> Mouth of a child. <laughs> and I said, I don't believe in her healing. She said, It's a good thing. And actually, in 93, I, I went to my elders. And I said, uh, We were risen king down at Reading. And I went to my elders and I said, Guys, I think I need help. And they went, Finally. I said, What do you mean, finally? They said, We've actually been putting money aside for you for a long time. Are you ready for some therapy? I said, Yeah. You knew about this? Oh yeah, and we've been waiting. And they were men filled with grace and mercy. And they gave me two options. They said, we'll either pay for two years of therapy or there's an inner healing conference that's eight days in Glen Erie, Colorado, and you can go and get two years in, of therapy in eight days. I'll, I'll take that. Because I don't want to stretch this out two years. I, 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 want, I want it now. So I go to this Rafa conference in, uh, in Glen Erie. And there were 16 of us that were gathered as participants. And if I told you the names of some of the 16 people, you would know that they're pretty famous Christian leaders, but I've never told anybody. And we were there because we we're broken and we we're messed up and we needed help. And so some of the best counselors and therapists from Rafa, this Christian counseling program were there. There was excellent teaching. There were one-on-one -on -one sessions, there were group sessions. And all week long, I just had an incredible time dealing with my father wounds. Because I thought my father was my primary wounder. And there were some wounds there, but I was fixated on father wound stuff. Well, there was a woman who was one of the 16 participants who was on this retreat who looked like my mother. She sounded like my mother. She looked like my mother would look when I would have been about five or six years of age, a younger person than my, my mom. And this woman irritated me. When I would hear her voice, I would feel anger. 
when she would laugh, I would feel anger. In fact, she irritated me so much, I decided that at the beginning of the week, I was going to avoid her at all costs. And so when we would go into a room, I would wait for her to sit down, and then I would sit as far from her as I could. When we would go to lunch, I would wait for her to get her food and sit down, and then I would sit as far from her as I could. I avoided her all week long, successfully. So the whole week was an incredible week. And on the final Sunday morning, we're all giving testimonies. And so I'm giving my testimony. And I said, I just want to thank the Lord for all the healing he's brought this week. He set me free from some lies. And, and again, wonderful teaching. Incredible encounters with God. It was a great week. And as I'm giving my testimony, this woman says, excuse me, if you're so free, why have you avoided me all week? <laughs> and I went, you shut the bleep, bleep, bleep up. <laughs> Shut her effing mouth. I just straight the main minister of the gospel that I was, okay? And I, I was furious that she didn't even speak to me. And she goes, I knew it. I remind you of your mother, don't I? And I went, shut up, shut up. And I start shaking. And I'm, all of a sudden I go, I know what this is. I think I need deliverance. I start to go into manifestation. Because listen, often when you have unresolved emotional stuff, and the lies have been there for a long time, it becomes a foothold, it becomes a stronghold, it becomes a purge, a topaz. And the enemy had manipulated that. And, uh, and, and she stands up and she says to the lead therapist, Rajan Morris, who I'm still in touch with to this day, she goes, could I, could I do something with him? <laughs> and for whatever reason, this therapist said, have at it. <laughs> This lady goes over in front of me, and she kneels down, and she grabs me by the hands. She holds my hands, and she starts to talk to me as if she's my mom. Mm. Now, again, let me repeat my phrase. What I'm sharing with you is descriptive, not prescriptive. This is kind of my story. Everybody's inner healing journey is going to look different. So I'm saying that to free you from the curse of thinking you have to do it the same way Wanda did it, or the same way Rob did it, or the same way Rob, because he meets us all in different ways, okay? So she starts to say, I am so sorry for the way I smothered you. I'm so sorry for that when your brothers didn't turn out the way I wanted them to do, I decided I would control you. Hmm. Now what she didn't know is that I have two brothers, 14 and 15 years older than me. And when they turned 18, they joined the Navy and they got the heck out of town to get away from my mom. And they went their own way. And when they did that, mom decided that she was going to control me. Mm -hmm. And mother love became smothered. And there's a lot of debt. But this woman, she starts to say, I'm so sorry. And she's apologizing. And she's repenting. And I'm literally shaking. People are gathering around. They know this is a major God moment. And I am just... I'm feeling anger, I'm feeling pain, I'm feeling uh, just all kinds of stuff coming up. And the last thing I remember her saying were these words. And in Jesus' name, I severed the emotional and spiritual umbilical cords with which I've kept you tied all these years. And when she said that, folks, it was like this giant blade went across the top of my head and I saw these high pressure hoses being sliced and severed. And I fell out on my face just right there. And they gathered around me and they prayed for a little bit. And I laid there for probably an hour. In fact, after they prayed for a little while, they went on with the service and I just laid there for about an hour. And when I kind of came to, an hour later, I stood at my feet 
And I stood up, and Rajan, this lead therapist, this Christian counselor, comes up to me and she goes, how are y'all doing? She was from the South. And I said, well, hopefully there ain't no y'all in here anymore. <laughs> she was y'all's what we call single people too. Okay, well then, y'all's fine. <laughs> and I looked at her and I go, uh, Rajan, am I taller? I feel tall. Now, the truth is, I've always believed that I didn't have a weight problem, I had a height problem. <laughs> she was, I was the perfect weight for 6'8". Okay. Okay, so, um, I said, I feel taller. And uh, she started to laugh. She said, no, you're the same height. But what you just went through is often described that way. When people get free from childhood shame, they feel like they've grown up. They feel like they've emerged from childhood. They're no longer a boy. They're no longer a young girl. They are now a woman. They're now a man. In some ways, Ron, you went through a bar mitzvah today. Welcome to manhood. So I wrote down in my Bible. It was May 4th, 1993. I was released from childhood shame and I became a man. And uh, I was 31, 32 at the time. 93, yeah, 31. I went home from that conference. Um, you may remember last time when I got filled with the Spirit, I came home from that conference and Wanda said, something happened to you. Well, she said the same thing in 1993. She said, what happened to you? I said, man, Jesus set me free. You're not married to a boy anymore. You're married to a man. It changed the way I related to my wife. I no longer related to my wife um, as my mom. I no longer reacted uh, to the things my mom did. Uh, you see, every time we would go home to visit my mom, I would get into a raging fight with her. Why? Because she would trigger me. And one would say, why are you so hard on your mom? Well, that's because she didn't see the 30 years of wounding. And I was carrying 30 years of wounding. And so when my mom would say something hurtful, she was getting the, the energy, the rage, the anger from 30 years. Well, we go back to visit after that. And my mom would say, hey, you're fat as ever, aren't you? And she would poke me. And instead of rage, I would put my arm around her and say, I think maybe we're related to the Pillsbury Dolphin, Mom. You know, I would joke with her and I would hug her and she would laugh. Why? Because when the Lord sets you free, you're no longer living in reaction. And, uh, and the healing comes. Now, when those lies are broken, you have to say, okay, what's the process? Let me give you a very simple process. Okay? I'm, I'm a real simple guy. Um, I used to teach theophostic training, which means bringing God's light, and it's a very detailed inner healing program. But I'm going to be honest, it was way too complicated for me. I need it simple. Uh, for me, it's got to be simple. Uh, i got to be able to see it in the scripture and just do it, okay? And so here, here's my process that I've used over the years. Uh, I have people, for yourself, start with yourself, or when you're ministering to others, ask the Holy Spirit to reveal the source and origin of wounds. Okay? Where did this begin? Where did it start? That's a good question. And I'm not encouraging you to psychoanalyze, but I am encouraging you to say, okay, if you're seeing the smoke trail of rage in your life, or the smoke trail of anxiety, or the smoke trail of fear, follow the smoke trail and ask yourself this question. Where did it begin? Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. And, and ask the Lord to reveal the source and origin of wounds and issues. Okay? Secondly, be willing to embrace the pain and experiential stirring of that memory. 
Now tomorrow, I don't know how many of you are going to be here, but I'm going to do a, a very important teaching with the RTI students on grieving. Because grieving is part of this process. If you don't learn how to grieve losses well, and this is the point I'm going to make tomorrow, we have to have both the theology of power and the theology of pain. And if you don't have a good theology of suffering and pain, you will give up on your theology of power because the first person you pray for that don't get healed, you'll give up and say, I'm never going to do that again. So you've got to grieve loss as well so that your past does not own you. And, and that's what we have to do. When we begin to experience the pain and experiential spirit of that memory, don't run from it, don't numb it, don't hide from it. Let Jesus stick your face in because it's that tough love that helps you to loosen the ground where that lie has been implanted and he uproots that lie and begins to speak the truth of who you are. This is who you are. You're my beloved. You are my called one. You're my anointed one. And so in the pain, he uproots the lie. Uh, third, allow Jesus to speak his truth to you in the midst of that experiential pain. And so in the midst of the pain, the voice of the Lord comes. Now, some of you are more visual. You may, like Jennifer, see a picture of Jesus. Some of you just hear his voice. Some of you, he just imprints the truth in your heart. There's a variety of ways that God speaks to us. You know that. But let him experientially speak that truth to you so that the experiential knowledge of his truth is more powerful than the experiential knowledge of the lies of the enemy. This is the renewal of the mind. This is the renewal of your soul. So that the salvation, the gospel salvation we're talking about here, sets you free. Not just from your sins, not just from the power of your sins, but the memory of the sins committed against you. And the lives that attach themselves to that. And then embrace his freedom and your renewed destiny. Um, again, I want to remind you of John 21. Jesus is saying to the fishermen, this is not who you are. I love the fact that he doesn't say, what's wrong with you guys? What are you doing fishing? I didn't tell you to fish. I told you to be fishers of men. He doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't shame them. He doesn't manipulate them. In fact, he helps them catch something. You know, I mean, that's almost like enabling their bad behavior. You know, because when you catch a bunch, you're going to be wanting to go next to you. So Jesus helps them. Why? Because he wants to bring grace and mercy to them in their experience with him. And he says, but now remember, this is not what you were made for. You were made for more. And he sets them free. And that's what he wants to do with us. Listen, your destiny is on the other side of your emotional healing. Your emotional healing is not an end in and of itself. It is to release you into your full anointing, your full destiny. Now, again, like Peter, I think we're all going to walk with a limp. Guess what? I still walk with a limp. I, I still am experiencing the fullness of healing. Let me share one last story, and, and then we're going to pray. Uh, last year, uh, well, let me say this first. It'll be five years this uh, since my mom died. Five years. It's been five years in November since the death of my mom. And, uh, and in that five years, this is hard for me to admit. I've never missed her one day. I've never missed her because um, she was a very painful person in my life. 
And I, I've also never missed her because even though the Lord brought healing to me, she never got healing. She ended up with dementia. And when the time came for her to be called home, I was thankful that she was with the Lord, that she was no longer tortured. That I, and literally, I, I said, I can't wait to be in heaven and meet my mom and have a talk with the glorified Matthew mm. and, and, and meet her without the baggage, without the shame, without all that stuff. I, I am excited for that. But I felt guilty for the last five years. What kind of a son are you? You don't at least miss your mom on Mother's Day. You don't have some feelings of, oh, I wish she was here so I could share my grandkids with her. I've never felt that. And so I, I, I started to feel guilty about it. And, um, and so last year I had a dream. And in the dream, I saw my mom. And as soon as I saw my mom in the dream, I started weeping. And I said, Mom, it's so good to see you. I felt emotions in the dream that I hadn't felt in real life. And in the dream, I threw myself into her lap and I threw my arms around her and I just cried and I said, Mom, Mom, Mom. And I woke up and I told Ron, and I go, I just had the weirdest dream. I said, ah, and I told her what I saw. And she looked at me and I think the Lord gave her this wisdom. She said, um, what did your mom do? I said, nothing. She said, did she weep? I said, no, she showed no emotion at all. Did she put her arms around you? No, she didn't. Did she comfort you? No. She goes, honey, the detachment was on her end, not your end. It's not your fault. It set me free. It set me free because I'm not the problem in this. I had a mom, she didn't know how to attach to me, and I suffered the effects of that. And yet, through God's healing, I'm attached to this woman God gave me and my children and friends like Rob and friends that, that I have, I've learned to attach. It's not on my end. The Lord's brought healing and, and it set me free to be able to say, okay, I'm not going to blame myself. I'm not going to shame myself. Does that make sense? Yeah, good. All right. Here's what I want us to do. If, if something is stirring in you, I want you to just stand and uh, and by standing, you're saying, I think I'm in a place where I'm ready for this. And, and, and we're going to do a prayer time. Not going to go too long. I'm looking at the time. It's 3 o'clock. But I do want to pray and kind of start this process and speak some words of impartation. And so um, if, if that's where you are, just stand. And if you see somebody stand next to you, just join them. Put, put your hand on them. Just go you're going to do a short ministry Yes. Yes. Lord, thank you for the courage of people standing right now. Because in essence, they're saying, like Jacob, what is your name? My name is Jacob. I'm I need help. I'm not going to pretend I'm not going to hide. So right now, Holy Spirit, come upon them right now. Come upon Thank you for the courage that it took for them to stand up, even with this, their colleagues here. And so, Lord, no more shame. No more fear. Come, Holy Spirit. Come upon them right now. Come. Watch over them with all that they need to remember. 
And right now, one of the things the Lord is saying to some of you is you have tears that are long overdue. You've pushed the tears down. You've dried the tears too long. And we give you permission to cry the tears of a seven-year-old. I didn't deserve that. That's not who I am. We'll give you permission to cry the tears of a 12-year-old. We'll give you the permission to feel the pain where the experiential lie was implanted so that the truth of Jesus can be planted in its place. So come, Holy Spirit. And the Lord is saying, this is the moment I am starting. You're in process. You're in process. And I will not let you go. So... We say to God, oh, we will not let you go until you bless me. But God says back to you, I will not let you go until I bless you. And I want you to hear that right now. That's how good and faithful is the one who loves you. I will not let you go until I bless you. You don't have to beg. He's got it. His grip on you is tighter than your grip on him. So come on. Father, I release in Jesus' name an impartation of emotional healing, inner healing over this congregation. Lord, this is a place where the broken are coming and the captives are getting set free. And the, the brokenhearted are experiencing the healing of Jesus. So come and turn these wounded healers into mighty warriors. Come, Holy Spirit. Now, wherever you are, if you're standing to receive healing, if you're standing to pray for somebody, Father, in the name of Jesus, we now ask for the healing oil of the Lord to be poured out on this group. He's increasing it. In fact, I hear him saying there's a new normal coming to this church. There's a new normal. In other words, he is raising the level of healing anointing, not just for physical, but emotional trauma, for spiritual wounding. He is, he is calling this place to be a place of healing. And let the oil of the Lord fill your hands right now. Let the oil of the Lord fill the hands. Some of you literally feel, I'm feeling oil in my hands right now. Some of you may even feel like an oil or uh, that the Lord's putting in your hands. Come. Wash them. Lord, I, I'm, I'm even asking that like in Numbers 11, the staff people that aren't here, for many for good reasons. Eldad and Medad did not show up at the meeting where the Holy Spirit came upon the other 68 elders, but the Holy Spirit came upon them. I'm asking for an anointing to rest on even the staff and leaders and elders that are not here. Come, fill them, anoint them. And Lord, we're going to say yes to freedom. And then we're going to help others say yes to freedom. Set our families free. Set our marriages free. You know what? I just feel before we close, I feel like a few of you need to just pray out some short prayers of response to Jesus in relation to this. Just a few, just some short prayers, and I'll close in just a minute.
good. It's good. It's good. Remember what Wanda said. You need to speak those words out. It, it's the beginning of the end of shame when you speak them out. Jesus, this is really scary mm -hmm. um, to think about doing some of these things. Oh, I ask you for courage. Yeah. I will not let you go. His anointing on you right now. He loves you. He's drawn near by His Spirit. Thank you, Father, that your word cuts down every line of the enemy. That's right. Shalom of the Lord, the peace of the Lord rest on you right now. Let the shalom of the Lord, He is with you. You are not alone. I want you to hear the words of Jesus to young Jennifer. You are not alone. I am with you. And to the enemy of your soul, Jesus looks at them and says, Thus far and no farther, you may not touch her. You may not touch him. He belongs to me. She belongs to me. Hands off. You may threaten, you may growl, you may roar, but you may not touch him. You may not touch her. And Jesus, we trust you. We trust you. And we say thank you. Thank you, Lord, that you desire to use us even in the midst of getting healed not healed completely, not there yet, and you love to use wounded healers like us. And Lord, we receive healing as we see others get healed. We thank you. We give you praise. Thanks for what you can do the rest of this week, Lord. 